0: Uh, Before getting married uh, to my wife, um, I lived with a couple of guys from Sunset um, in the uh, Sunset District, and uh, I used to go on walks in the neighborhood. Uh, There used to be a Lutheran church nearby that we would always pass by. And, uh, you know, I got married, moved out, and uh, recently we walked by that neighborhood and came across that same Lutheran church, but something had drastically changed. Uh, It had become a Buddhist temple in the last few years, uh, and it was a very jarring image, uh, as we had, um, yeah, as we had been so used to seeing it as a Lutheran uh, church. But uh, oddly enough, the the Buddhists who had moved in had not done much to change the uh, structure. They had left old signage here and there uh, that still said it was a Lutheran church. There were uh, pictures of saints, or the the uh, stained glass was still up there with the the saints, um, and there were some crosses that were left on the windows, and so. It was a weird image um, where the building itself was a contradic- contradiction because you saw, you know, Buddhist uh, uh, signage, you saw Buddha statues, you saw a cross, uh, and these things just didn't belong together. Um, and today we see something similar as Paul's concluding his argument from, uh, that he started all the way in chapter 2, uh, where he's trying to conclude uh, and, and make an argument for his, uh, his friends at, at the Church of Corinth, and he's saying, you need to separate from unbelievers. You need to be set apart from them. You don't belong together because you belong on opposite ends. You're preaching two different messages and to join yourself to them is to put yourself in their position, which is foolishness. And you know, these are the people who he's been talking about uh, throughout the, the, the book um, where he's making a case against these who have spoken against his ministry. Those who have said, Paul cannot be an apostle of Jesus because look at how much he's suffering. God clearly doesn't favor him. If God favored him and he was preaching a true message, how would he suffer? It makes no sense. And Paul's saying, no, actually, it's because I follow Jesus, because I'm faithfully preaching that I am suffering. And it is actually a sign of my faithfulness. And so he's putting his foot down and now he's calling for the Corinthians to hold fast to the gospel in three distinct ways. The first one is to separate from unbelievers. Uh, The second one is to cling to the relationship we have with God, and the third is to pursue holiness. So three different ways. First one, the gospel calls for separation. All right, Paul makes it clear, believers should not be yoked to unbelievers. Look at verse 14 with me. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, and immediately, for those of us who grew up in the church, this verse is very familiar, right? Every time a kid asks, can I date a non-believer? This is the verse that gets shoved in their face. Don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer, right? And, and I, I, I will be honest with you. I myself have used this verse many times. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. That's not the context of this verse. Nothing up until chapter six talks about marriage, Or dating. That's not correct. Now, to be fair, there's biblical wisdom here. All right. And and there's many other verses within the Bible, many other passages that talk about marriage. uh, That gives us biblical wisdom to apply to the situation of dating a non believer or marrying a non-believer. But this verse in its correct context has nothing to do with that. All right. Now, if you're in you know thinking about that, this is not, you know, proof that it's okay uh, to, to pursue a non believer. In fact, you know, if you want to talk about it, come and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you as to why uh, dating a non-believer or marrying a non-believer is actually very detrimental to your faith. But that's besides this point, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. And then there's another uh, way this verse is often used where Christians will say, well, this means I can't do business with a non-believer, right? I can only support businesses like Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out because they have verses hidden on their utensils. And it's like, oh, now it's okay. That's also not it, all right? But what... The context is telling us, and what Paul is telling us, is that he's calling out non-believers within our churches. Non-believers who sit in our pews, right? Those who have been waging a war against him who claim to be Christian and yet have been telling others that Paul's ministry is a lie. That's what all these passages have been saying. And and they've been slandering Paul against his apostleship. Later on uh, in the book, we we hear that these guys call themselves super apostles. I mean, that's a fantastic name. Uh, And they're like, we're preaching the true gospel. Paul's gospel is false. And Paul says, no, they preach a different kind of Jesus. They give you a different kind of message. And that's why he calls them unbelievers, right? He's not calling them names. He genuinely believes that they are not believers. They're not Christian. They preach a false gospel because they reject the gospel of Jesus that I have taught you, Corinthians. Therefore, Paul warns them, do not be yoked to these unbelievers. And this idea of yoke is is this wooden piece that would sit on the shoulders of two large animals, often oxen who would plow a field uh, going in the same direction. Uh, and he's saying, and he's using that imagery and he's saying, if you're yoked to another, you can't go in opposite directions. You're tied together. And so he's saying, don't be yoked to them. Don't be allied to them. If you side with them, You will side with their theology. You will side with their false gospel. And you will, in other words, renounce your own salvation because you proclaim a different Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. And that's how seriously Paul takes this. And the the examples he uses in his rhetorical questions give you a sense of how seriously he takes it, right? Righteousness versus lawlessness. Light versus darkness. Christ versus Belial. That's another name of the devil. All right, what portion of a, of a believer versus a portion with a non-believer? A temple of God versus idols? And he's saying, if you yoke yourself to any of these, you're essentially renouncing Christ. You need to separate from them. You guys are going in opposite directions. In other words, he's saying, remain with me, Paul is saying, because you are saying, if you remain with me, that the gospel I preach is true. That the Jesus I preach to you is the true God, cling to Christ. See, he's not worried about losing fans. He's not worried about losing friends, but he's worried that they will abandon the Jesus who has saved them. He's worried that they will abandon the gospel message that actually saved them in the first place. And so things to consider for us. We have to be clear, first of all, what Paul is not teaching. Okay, first off, he's not teaching us, Christians, you are to avoid non-Christians. That's very clear. This, This is not it. He's not telling us we need to avoid non-Christians because some circles within the church have taken this to mean we cannot befriend the world, right? And those of us who grew up in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, we grew up in the Christian subculture where we were so turned off from the world that we decided to become insular, close our doors, and create our own world. And as a result, many of us have become impotent when it comes to carrying out the Great Commission. How are we to reach those whom we won't even be friends with? It makes no sense. You can't make disciples with people you, you won't even talk to. right? So that's not what Paul is teaching. Right? And rather, the, the, the church, the body of Christ, is supposed to be the place where non-Christians find themselves welcomed in to learn here, to grow here, to explore here, and where they find themselves to be loved in our midst. All right. And second, this is not saying that anyone who disagrees with you theologically is now a heathen. I'll be very honest with you. None of us will reach heaven with the absolute correct theology. No one will. We're all trying to, lo- to know God. We're all trying to learn about God. Uh, if we're genuine Christians, we're trying our very best to honor God. But what naturally happens is we come away with different convictions and different conclusions we saw that with Paul and Barnabas, two very faithful men who both loved Jesus genuinely, and yet they they did not agree on certain things, and so they went their separate ways. That's why we have so many denominations within Christianity. We're all trying to honor God as best as we possibly can, but we are all limited in different ways. And so those who disagree with you, as long as they have the gospel message of Jesus correct, that's your brother, that's your sister. What Paul is teaching, however, is that we cannot ally ourselves with false teachers who preach a false gospel within the church. Those are the ones we have to cut ourselves off with. All right. Recently, we've been taking the uh, high school seniors around to different churches in the city uh, in order to to show them what it's like to go off to college and find a new church. We weren't looking for false teachers, okay? But but we're going out there and trying to explore with them. What's it like to step into a a new church, a new community, to get to know uh, what it's like and we've been teaching them, you know, what to look for, uh, what to be careful of. Um, and and there's many different things uh, that go into, you know, the decision-making of, do I want to call this my church for the next four years? Uh, and as we've talked to the kids, it's been really interesting because, you know, there's different things they notice. There's different music styles, uh, different Bible versions that they use, um, different, I'm, le- I'm learning this, different vibes. Uh, I don't even know what that means, but they're like, oh, this church has a big vibe. I'm like, that good or bad, man. Uh, we don't know, right? We're trying to explore together. Uh, but what we've tried to impress upon them and encourage them to think about is the only core thing that truly matters, above all things, do they preach the gospel of Jesus? Do they actually preach Jesus as the message of salvation? Is Is that what is important most of all? Everything else is secondary. It's important, but it's not as important as if they preach the gospel or not see, Paul is saying, for Christians, we are not to be allied with any false teachers, anyone who preaches a contrary gospel. It could be those who preach a legalistic message of judgment and condemnation that's devoid of grace. They might sing of grace. Grace might be in their church title, right? But grace is lacking within the church. Jesus is mentioned, yes, but he's there to judge and condemn all who fail to meet his standards, which ironically, our standards set by them, not by God. They emphasize the works of man over the grace of God, and heaven is a place ultimately for all those who have it put together. Or maybe it's on the other side, where they preach a liberal progressive message that has ripped out the heart of the gospel, where the gospel has been replaced by some sort of moralistic new age spiritualism, where Jesus is a friend, right? He's nice, but he's not necessary. The cross is scoffed at because it makes no sense. There's this is a place where Jesus' divinity is is debated and his resurrection is debated, where God is just your friend and no longer a judge or a king. And heaven is a place for everyone because God in his right mind would never send anyone to hell. You see, if anyone claims that we need more than or less than Jesus to receive salvation, we are to cut ourselves off from them. And we make sure we, we don't remain. They don't remain in our churches because We cannot allow them to teach or preach this false gospel. And that's to say, if I come up here and preach a gospel contrary to the one in the Bible, he need to get me out of here. I don't belong on the pulpit. And Paul's clear, these are not believers if they reject Christ. If they reject Christ, they are on the side of the devil. That is what he's arguing. And even more so for us today, in our interconnected age, we have it even harder. Why? Because in the age of the internet... We have a large pool of teachers and preachers uh, that is not confined by proximity any longer. We have the audiobook, the podcast preachers, the TikTok preachers, the YouTube preachers. We have a plethora of voices that are vying for our attention who claim to preach the Christian message. And yet we need to be careful that what they're preaching is actually what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter how charismatic, how funny, how intellectual they are. Because only one message saves, and that is the message of Jesus. Are we careful, my friends? Second, the gospel calls us to relationship with Jesus, uh, or relationship to God. And Paul wants us to understand the gospel is ultimately a relational message. Look at verse 16, the second half. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. All right. And so Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament and he's saying we are the temple of the living God because God has declared he will dwell with us. He will be with us Uh, And and he starts there in verse 16 with these promises that are taken from Leviticus, taken from Exodus, right after the first Exodus, uh, where God is declaring, my desire to be with you, Israel. I will be with you. I will dwell with you. I saved you because I loved you and I brought you out of slavery so that I could live with you. And then he ends it in verse 18 with more promises from different parts of the Old Testament. We have 2 Samuel, we have Isaiah, Ezekiel, where God desires uh, he declares his desire to be intimate with his people. I'll be your father, you'll be my sons and my daughter. We will be part of one family. But very interestingly enough, in the middle of these two verses of 16 and 18, we have verse 17, where he gets the same charge to separate from all that is unclean. It's a very interesting setup, isn't it? Yeah, I think Paul's uh, um, use of these quotes is, is very deliberate in how he positions it. He wraps this command to separate from sin with the promises of God from both ends. Why? I think he wants us to see God's heart. He wants us to understand what is God's heart behind his commands. See, God wants us to separate from sin because he wants to dwell with us. He wants us to separate from sin because he wants to be our father. He wants us to separate from sin so we can be his sons and daughters. He wants to be intimate with us. He wants to have relationship with us. That's what he's trying to get at. This is a relational God. See, what Paul is describing here is actually the undoing of Genesis 3, where we have the fall of mankind, where Adam and Eve taking of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat. You see, what happened at that moment when they ate of the fruit, they decided, God, you are not our God any longer. And what was the result of their, of their action? They were kicked out of Eden. They could no longer dwell with God. They were no longer part of his family. They were no longer his sons and his daughter. They could not be by his side. He could not dwell with them any longer. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God declaring, I'm going to undo that. I'm going to undo that, what you did in in Genesis 3. I'm going to undo it and bring you back to myself. And, And that's why he quotes these all from the Old Testament. Paul is trying to show us from the beginning, God has been working to undo the fall of mankind. To bring you back into relationship with him. These quotes all point out his desire for us. And this is the driving force behind God's entire salvation plan. My friends, have you understood that to be true? I think for myself growing up in the church for so many years, I would read all these stories and they would not make sense. They would not be connected. I would not understand why they're all in here. Until this point became clear to me that our God from the beginning has had one desire and that is to be your father for you to be his son and his daughter, for you to dwell with him, for him to walk with you. And the amazing thing is at the very end in Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, we see this scene, Revelation 20, 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And this, this is God speaking. There's no one else who sits on the throne. This is God saying, bookending the entire Bible, saying from the beginning I had this and at the end I will still have this desire and I will carry it out to fruition. I will make you mine. I will make you mine and I will dwell with you. What I decided I will do in the beginning, I will carry it out. I will dwell with you. I want to dwell with you. And in verse seven, he says this, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Those who separate from sin, those who touch no unclean thing, they will be my child. In other words, I will carry out my plans and I will bring you back to myself through the spilled blood of my perfect son, through his work, of living perfectly and dying on the cross and rising again. And this is the gospel of Jesus that Paul has been preaching. And he's saying, guys, this is what you're throwing away. If you cling to these false preachers and their false message, this is the message that saves. We must separate from them. Have you wondered why God gives us so many commands, why he commands us to live a certain way? Maybe you've come to church your entire life. You've heard all these rules, all these expectations that he has of us, and you wonder, "What's, what's the deal, God? Why? Why do you keep giving us so many rules, right? You have nothing better to do? Do you hate us? Are you looking to create more ways for me to trip up and mess up? See, Paul is trying to help us understand what is the heart of God? What drives him to do anything? And he's Pointing it out here, and he's saying it's love. He's a God who loves you and desires you to be with him. And we see that in in the name of his own son, Emmanuel. God with us. It's not just the title, it's literally God with us. And he was to be a sign of God's promises before and at the end. It's not just theology. But it's a personal God who's saying, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to live with you and have fellowship with you. And I mean, this, this gives color to our idea of heaven, doesn't it? I think as a kid, hearing about what heaven would be like, I'm going to be honest with you, all I thought it was, was, you know, babies, naked babies floating around playing harps and all of us just floating around. I don't know about the naked part, but we're all floating around in heaven doing nothing. That isn't it. That's not it. That's not biblical at all. The biblical vision of heaven is God living with us, dwelling with us, walking with us, enjoying us, and us enjoying him. That is incredible. That is our eternity. And this is a God who says, I want to make you my sons and daughter. We are not to be his slaves or his servant. We actually get to be his children. And we are to be his royal heirs to the throne, who have been given an inheritance that we do not deserve in the slightest, maybe you need to hear that today. Your God loves you. And if you need proof, look at his plan. He says, I want you. He said it from the beginning. He says it throughout the Bible. And he will say it at the end. I still want you to dwell with you, to have you as my child. And my friend, don't skip over the fact that he paid an immense price to have you. He gave up his only son, as John three sixteen says, "He for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son." Let me be honest with you. I, I have a seven month old at home. I'm not giving him up for anything. You can offer me anything—money, glory, material wealth—I don't care. I want my son. That's how precious he is to me. And God says, I love you so much that I'm going to give my own son up for you. If you wonder, God, do you love me? Do you love me? Are you sure? He says, yes, 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 I do. It's also how it transforms how we view sin. It transforms how we view God's commands when we actually understand God's heart. Right? Sin is no longer a bad choice or a mistake, because sin is actually what makes it impossible for us to be with him. It, and, and you, you see, when, when we see it like that, that's how we learn to genuinely hate sin, because we recognize it's what keeps me apart from my God. You want to fight sin? You want to defeat sin? It's to change your heart. To hate sin like God hates it. He hates it because it keeps us from him. It. And when we see God's command, we understand that it's no longer restricting or overbearing rules that he gives us, but rather that they are his proclaimed love for us, given to us to protect us. His rules are for our good and not against us. When we understand that we begin to love his commands... We begin to proclaim how wonderful are your rules. That's why the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It goes on and on and on. And if you read it, you're like, man, this is repetitive. And it's like, yeah, there's one idea. God, your rules are great. As someone who understands, finally, God, your rules are good for me. They declare your love for me. And ultimately, understanding God's heart actually causes us to marvel at Jesus. All right? We recognize that the chasm between us and God was so great. And there's Nothing that we could ever do to cross that chasm. That's the whole point of the Mosaic Law. And maybe you hear the gospel and this is like the 30,000th time you heard it. And you're like, eh, heard it before. God's love is the answer. Ah, that's so cliche. And I know that because I've said that before in my own heart. My friends, we can't take the gospel for granted. Maybe a helpful practice is this. Imagine what would the reality be if you didn't have it. If God's answer was not the answer. If God's love was not the answer, rather. What would our reality be? The chasm would remain, and it would just remain. There would be no God who says, I love you enough to send my own son down to die for you so you can cross that. You would remain dead in your sins. There would be no but God. We would remain dead. We were dead in our sins, and we are dead. And that's it. As a conclusion. But thanks be to God that the, the gospel that Paul preached was this, that but thanks be to God that he did love us. He loved us and he sent Christ down to die so that you and I could have his right to be with the Father. That's amazing. And so this Jesus that Paul preached and calls us to hold fast to this is the Jesus that we cannot throw aside. And this is, is actually what causes us to change and seek holiness. This is our, our last point. God calls us to holiness. See, Paul wraps up his argument with this call to pursue holy, holiness. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so he says, since these promises are ours, beloved, right? He says, because of that, now let us cleanse ourselves. Let us act and respond to that. And so it's clear to, to see there that um, his motivation for holiness is because he has these promises. He already has them. And it's not because there's a sort of damnation or condemnation that he is acting. All right. It's not hanging over his head but it's because he already has these promises in Christ that he is to pursue holiness. And then not only holiness in body or spirit, but body and spirit. It's all of us. It's all inclusive. Every part of us is to be separated from things that will defile us. Not just the outside, but the inside as well. He's calling for genuine transformation from the internal that affects the external. It's not just one or the other. And he's saying this is how we grow in holiness. It brings it to completion. It's speaking of this progressive sanctification that naturally happens in believers. You know, when we became believers, we did not magically become sinless. We didn't magically become uh, uh, the perfect person. We don't stop struggling, but we are progressively transformed into the image of our God, like we read earlier. And Paul's motivation here is, is amazing. He says, it's the fear of God. All right, right there, bringing it into completion in the fear of God. Now, it's important to recognize God, Paul's not preaching this, this uh, legalistic God of judgment, right, who, who will condemn us when we fail to live up to his standards. That's contrary to what he's preaching. That's why he preached Jesus as the answer. But he also hasn't forgotten that God is the God who judges. He's a God who is a king. He is a God who created the universe, and it's important for him that we have the proper fear of God. We were visiting one of the other churches where a preacher declared that God is our friend, which is absolutely true. He is our friend. But one of the kids noted afterwards, God isn't just our friend. He's also king. That's true, right? He's the one in, who, in front of whom all of us will kneel down in front of one day. You see, the proper fear of God actually pushes us towards holiness. We take it seriously because God takes it seriously and it instills within us the proper reverence for God. We need to learn how to fear God. Several things to think through before we finish. First, do you desire holiness for yourself in your body and in your spirit? Do you desire to cleanse yourself from everything that draws you away from God? And that means actually living differently, actually transforming yourself. That means you know whether it's pride, lust, greed, selfishness, whatever it is that you recognize as defilement within yourself, do you seek to cleanse yourself from these things? I mean, man, yesterday I, I took I went out to Chinatown, bad choice. Uh, and and yeah, I, I don't want to spare you the details, but a, a meter maid guy like really came at me and my family real strong. So much so that there was this anger within me where, I, I'm being honest with you, I wanted to fight that guy. As driving away, I was like, man, that was not Christ like at all. Like, I wanted to fight. I would definitely not win, but I wanted to fight. I recognized there was an anger within me. This is this unhealthiness. And I'm like, man, if I truly love God and I wanted to be holy, I would recognize that that can't remain in me. I got to toss that aside. I got to cast that out of me. I, I got to fight that. I can't just dislike these things and continue to cling to them and continue to live in the same way. If I'm the temple, if we are the temple of the living God, I got to look the part. Otherwise, I look like that, that that church that now has Buddhist idols, Buddhist imagery all set up around it. That's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. Second, do you seek holiness because you think you need to earn the promises of God? Do you, need, do you feel like you need to earn the blessings of God? And do you live the same way, seek to live the same way, because you feel like if you can succeed in these ways, you will receive his blessing. You will be loved and accepted by him if you do it correctly. And you live under this constant fear of failure because you think, if I mess up, I'm going to lose it. I know very clearly how Paul writes there. He does not say, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement so that we may have these promises. What does the verse actually say? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Because we already have obtained the promises of God, the blessings of God, the, the, the truth that he seeks to have you as his own child because you already have it. Beloved, you are already loved by him. Those things are already yours. Therefore, live differently. Therefore, fight. You, you can't lose it. You don't need to earn it. Because Christ has already earned it for you. Finally, do, do you worry that this completion of holiness will never happen in you? Maybe you, you're like me. You struggle you have doubts at times, you backslide, you have moments of weakness and you feel like this idea of completion is so bizarre because I see how broken I am still. I'm so weak, I'm powerless, my flesh is so weak. How will I ever come to that point? Here's the good news, my friends. It's not primarily your work. Philippians 1, verse 6, a very familiar verse And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is Paul saying, God is the one working in you. God is the one who is transforming you. God is the one who is changing your heart from the inside out. He is the one who started that work in you when he saved you, and he will carry it out to the very end. And one day, not because you're strong enough, you're good enough, but he is good enough, he is strong enough, he will transform you. He will finish that work in you so that you will not struggle any longer. You will not wrestle any longer. You will not have to deal with temptation any longer. You will not be weak any longer. You will be made radiant glorious and beautiful and pure. He will carry it out to completion in you one day. Is that the comfort you hold on to? The peace that you hold on to? As a God that we live with, as a God we will see face to face one day, my friends, on that day when Jesus comes again, we, the living temple of God, will be able to dwell with him forever. Is that not a glorious future we get to look forward to? Come and pray for us. God, we, we long for that day when we get to see you face to face when the work in us will be carried out to completion by you and we will be radiant and glorious and pure as your bride when we will be holy like you God we thank you for loving us for wanting us for seeking us out And declaring from the beginning to the very end that you will make us your own god we do not deserve it but we thank you that that is your character that is who you are and you will make us lovely thank you for being a gracious loving god i can't wait to see him praise the name. amen